0: Why don't you take your Bibles and open with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. And if you do need a Bible, we have some. If you want to lift your hand up, we'd be happy to bring one over to you so you can follow along as we study God's Word. Just hold your hand up, and they're coming up the aisle with some Bibles. That way you can follow along. Make sure what we're saying and what we're looking at is the truth of God's Word for yourself. So just keep your hand up, and they'll bring a Bible over to you. you know, before we get to our study this morning, I just... As we were worshiping, felt like the Lord kept impressing this verse on my heart. Perhaps it's for one of you or maybe a few of you here this morning. I don't know, but I just want to share it. Uh, Isaiah 41 declares this. God says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. And I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Maybe that's a word of encouragement from the Lord for one of you here this morning. We're going to continue in our study through Luke's Gospel, chapter 13. We left off last time there. Verse 17. This morning we're going to look at verse 18 all the way down through verse 30. So beginning in Luke, chapter 13, verse 18. And if you're turning there with me out of respect for God's Word, would you stand as I read our text for Bible study this morning? Luke 13, beginning in verse 18, tells us that Jesus said, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree. And the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leaven. And he went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door... And you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you, where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you, where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. And they will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. Father, we humble our hearts before you this morning and just ask dependently that you by your holy spirit even now would help us as we open up our hearts our minds our lives to the word of god and what it would say to us we thank you again this morning that it is god-breathed profitable for doctrine for reproof for correction and Training and righteousness that we as men and women of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So this morning, by your Spirit's ministry in our midst, would you make it profitable for each and every one of us. That we wouldn't hear wise or persuasive words of a man, but each experience that demonstration of your Spirit and your power speaking personally to each and every one of our hearts. We believe you have something to say to us, Lord. That's why we're opening this book in your presence. And we ask now by your Spirit's ministry, prepare us and speak personally into each and every one of our lives. We thank you that that's what you will do, Lord, in advance. And we pray these things in agreement in Jesus' wonderful name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it's pretty obvious in the reading of what we're looking at this morning that Jesus here is speaking about the tremendous importance of entering the kingdom of God. And we'll see as we go through this that Jesus addresses a couple different things regarding that main point of the integral importance of each and every soul on this planet making the choice to enter into the kingdom of God. Now remember in our verses last time that we looked at together by way of context of where we're flowing from, Jesus had just encountered a very confused and really corrupted religious leader. Remember we saw that there in the synagogue on the Sabbath day that Jesus was there. There was a woman who had said had a spirit of infirmity and for 18 years was in this condition and was bound and was bent over, the language literally double bent, she had some type of a severe spinal condition where for 18 years, and there was some even spiritual source behind it, because remember Jesus said over ultimately in verse 15 and 16 there specifically that Satan himself was causing this specific affliction in this woman's body. He was somehow the spiritual source behind that particular infirmity in that woman's life. And Jesus saw this woman having compassion for her in the midst of this worship service... Jesus seeing her in this condition, in pain, in bondage, having suffered for so many years in that condition, and his heart was drawn in compassion towards her. And Jesus addressed her. He spoke personally a word of authority into her life. It says that he touched her and said to her that she would be loosed from that condition. And remember, verse 13 said, immediately... Not after years and years of therapy, immediately it says she was made straight. And we talked about the wonderful, glorious ministry of Jesus to transform lives and how that is his heart's intention to this day still because he, he hasn't ceased to exist. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I believe he wants to do the same. He wants to continue transforming lives. And Jesus Christ has the power through his authority as the Son of God to make People straight, to straighten out whatever it is in any one of our lives that may be a, a life dominating sin or some condition or struggle. The Lord has the power to transform lives, the Lord has the ability to straighten out anything in any one of our lives if we truly encounter Him and experience His touch upon our lives. And that's tremendous hope that we all have. Well, when Jesus healed this woman in that synagogue service and transformed her lives, remember, this corrupt religious leader who obviously was very confused, who was just as much in bondage as the woman, only his bondage was a religious spirit that lacked the love of God and had no real understanding of what God's heart was. He spoke up, remember, rebuked everyone in the synagogue service and started complaining, saying there are six days on which people ought to be healed and how dare you do this on the Sabbath. Go home and be healed on the other days but not on the Sabbath because this healing stuff is like work. And he basically was, tragically, through his blinded perspective, polluting God's true intention for the worshipers who were assembling that day because he was in bondage to his own blinded perspective. And sadly, him polluting God's intention for the worshiper, sadly, that has been and will always be the case among God's people. There will always, to some extent, be where that is spiritually pure and what is spiritually genuine is taking place, there will always be the constant threat of that being polluted and defiled by evil by corrupted individuals with wrong mentalities or wrong heart attitudes. And there will always be, when there's the genuine work of God taking place, a constant threat of the enemy and what is corrupt, trying to infiltrate and trying to distort and to defile what the heart of God really is. And nowhere really is that more dangerous or damaging than as it pertains to individuals understanding Clearly, as God would have them to, how to enter into the kingdom of God. And we'll see that as we go through this story this morning. Look at me again back in verse 18. If you draw your attention back to there, Jesus begins after that encounter in the synagogue, having rebuked that man for his hypocrisy, corrupting the ideas of the worshipers. Jesus now says, verse 18 said, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? He says, it's like a mustard seed, which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew, and it became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. Again, he said, to what shall I liken or compare, he says, the kingdom of God? It's also like leaven, Jesus says, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Now what we have here is Jesus, no doubt in response to that interaction that just took place, you have Jesus here forecasting what the kingdom of God would be like, giving some illustrations or comparisons that the people in that day could very clearly relate to. And he's indicating what the unfolding of the kingdom of God would become like Not only during the time of his earthly ministry, but certainly as it would then go forward into the church age of which you and I are still a part of. Note in verse 18, he's clearly seeking to use metaphoric speech. He says, what is the kingdom of God like? And he says, to what shall I compare it? So he's trying to make analogies and illustrations using metaphoric speech in these two brief parables there in verse 19 as well as in verse 21. Now the best way many a times and particularly here with these parables to interpret parables is to use a a way of study that's important when looking at the Bible which is called expositional constancy. Now, Expositional Constantly basically says that whatever something represents the first time it appears in the Bible, that that then is usually the same thing it should represent or mean throughout the remainder of Scripture as you continue to study through the Bible. That the first time you see something show up You get its truest meaning and what something represents, even if it's something symbolic as what we sort of see here with these birds and the trees and the leaven and so forth, that something's meaning remains constant as we exposit or we interpret the rest of Scripture. It's expositional constancy we carry that idea. And we notice, first of all, that Jesus likens the kingdom of God in verse 19 to a mustard seed experiencing tremendous growth And tremendous expansion to become a huge tree that then becomes a lodging place, he says, for birds to come and nest in its branches. Now, a mustard seed did not typically grow into a large tree. So very clearly, Jesus here is intending to picture abnormal growth. It wasn't typical for a mustard seed to grow into a large, big, sturdy, and strong tree. So this is abnormal growth. It's unusual development. It's the expansion of something that involves becoming way bigger than what was ever expected. That's what Jesus is picturing here. In fact, so large and sturdy does this particular mustard seed become. He says it actually becomes a large tree, so large that it has strong and sturdy branches it puts out from itself that allows the opportunity for all different kinds of birds to come and to have access and make a nesting place in its branches where it was. Now, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gave one of his first parables And in one of his first parables, Jesus gave that parable, remember, of the sower that went out to sow seed in the different kinds of soil. And in that parable there, Jesus actually gives the specific interpretation as well with that parable. And in that parable, one of the first ones he gives in his ministry, birds in that parable in Matthew 13 represented the activity and the opposing work of Satan himself, who Jesus said the birds of the air come and they, they eat up the seed or the word of God so that it doesn't have an impact on people's hearts. So in that particular parable, Jesus clearly depicts, he says those birds represent the evil one and his efforts of opposition to hinder the work of the kingdom of God. Now it's not likely here that Jesus himself, again giving another parable, would be seeking to use birds in a different way than he already did in a prior parable where he specifically interpreted that those birds represented the influence of the devil and the evil ones. So what this parable pictures is how the ministry of the kingdom of God would indeed flourish. That the kingdom of God would blossom abundantly. Think about it. Crowds, huge crowds, we see have been following Jesus. As you get into the early church in the book of Acts, you see there is rapid expansion. Even today, as we look in our modern generation, there are huge numbers among what we refer to today as Christianity or Christendom. The church has grown into a massive institution in many ways. As we just look all around us, it's pretty obvious we have huge denominations among the church. We have today, especially in the modern generation, what we now call mega churches. And churches that become so large that then they almost you know, formulate their ministry ideas and, and franchise their particular systematic style of ministry and, and put people out almost with a, a business mindset and a business model to go out. And the church has become this massive institution. However, as a result, the church has been and the church always will be because of that massive growth, that reality, a lodging place for all types of evil and corrupt things to enter into it and to nest in its branches among it. Because of how big and sturdy this spiritual institution's become, it just presents a very opportune place for access of corrupt things of all sorts to enter in and to nest among it. I mean, just consider it things like false teachers. ...coming in and nesting in the branches among the church... ...and then propagating wrong doctrines liberalizing things and being very liberal in the interpretations of what the word of God truly says or on the flip side of that legalism and putting rules and all kinds of unscriptural burdens and requirements upon people or those who teach things like you know, prosperity and the faith movement and, and everybody has to be healed or you have sin in your life and, and you don't have enough faith and that's why you're, you're still struggling with some illness or physical problem and these different things infiltrate Under the umbrella of the church. You have the entrance of things like wolves and charlatans. People who uh, are are just nothing other than, honestly, they're religious frauds. They're swindlers. They understand how to take a religious cloak and to dress a certain way and talk a certain way. and, And maybe even get a television program and say hallelujah and be slick and charismatic. And they're nothing more than religious salesmen. They're charlatans. And they're doing nothing other than using the umbrella of of the things that are called Christianity to just prey upon naive and gullible people and to enrich themselves with an unhealthy motive. We have among the the branches of what is called the church all types of pseudo-Christian cults. Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness and Christian science, these things that put themselves among the branches of what is intended to be the church and the kingdom of God and talk about Jesus, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's not science by any means what Christian science is. But it nests among the branches of the church, and we have these things integrated. We have for years, and the presence of them, unfortunately, unhealthy things They will always find avenues into the kingdom of God and the genuine work of God's people and establish their presence right among God's people. And it is an unfortunate thing, but to make a nest and breed their influences and activities under the covering of the kingdom of God's umbrella is something that has been happening for generations and it's something that we see continues to take place today. Sadly, it is just one of the downsides, Jesus says, of the massive growth and development that took place as in some ways men got a hold of the things of God's kingdom and it just allows for easier access and defilement where wrong things can enter in, they can find avenues to get in and because there's all types of opportunity they can sort of plant themselves and make their nests and really they're just polluting the gospel ministry, they're corrupting and defiling the genuine work of God's spirit by their presence intermingled among that which is supposed to be pure in the kingdom of God. They find ways to infiltrate and inhabit right among God's people. And Jesus here, knowing that, warns of that reality in advance through this parable. He also illustrates, notice, the kingdom by way of leaven. And there in verse uh, 21, hidden in dough, it says, a woman inserts it, she hides it in there, and that leaven then spreads and affects the entire lump. Now... A small amount of leaven inserted into a a portion of dough through the putrefying process ultimately spreads and infects the entire lump. The Bible says a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. And we know, again, through expositional constancy, if we want to stay true to the context of Scripture, leaven in the Bible from Old Testament through typically is always symbolically used to represent what is evil and sinful. Again, Jesus himself has already used the word leaven in this particular capacity and context. In Luke chapter 12, verse 1, just one chapter back, Jesus said there these words, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. In other words, Jesus referring to the hypocrisy of the religious leaders the Pharisees, he called it leaven. And he said, Beware of it, so that you're not infected By their religious hypocrisy. And Jesus used leaven there to illustrate that sinful, evil behavior from the religious leaders in that day. In Matthew, Jesus warns of the leaven, he says there, which represents the wrong doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. One was legalism, the other really was liberalism. And Jesus is picturing how among the kingdom of God, there will be also people who are inserting via, let's say, hidden deposits, some really dangerous ideas. And some treacherously wrong doctrines. And it will be a part of the reality of God's kingdom. There will be ideologies and doctrines that can spread that are not from the Lord. That can infect people who are exposed to them. And ideas that will defile people's spiritual understandings. And they'll be inserted like leaven and will affect those who are exposed to them. Listen to what Peter says in his second epistle, 2 Peter 2, verse 1 to 3. Peter declares this, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. Now listen to Peter's words by the Spirit's inspiration. Regarding false teachers, he says, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Do you notice what the Holy Spirit said there? Secretly bring in destructive heresies. Look, somebody doesn't stand up and say, hey, we're going to go 85 degrees off from what the Word of God really... No, no, secretly, subtly, slowly, like the frog in a boiling pot of water, just secretly. Hey, we're, we're, we're just, we're just going to take a, a little new direction here. And that new direction just gradually... And he says, secretly, they bring in destructive heresies. They may say 98% of what's right. But if they're 2% off... If you've ever taken off on a flight before, you don't want the navigation devices on the plane to work 98% accurately. Guess what? You travel quite a distance, you're going to be nowhere near where you're supposed to land at. You're going to end up way off course. And Peter says these false teachers, they secretly bring in destructive heresies. And then worse, he says, and many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Then Peter says, by covetousness, greediness, by covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words secretly bringing in things with covetousness as their motivation exploiting people with very deceptive words. Now, why is Jesus, question here, why is Jesus obviously telling us about the presence of evil and corrupting things that will coexist among God's people as corrupting influences among us? Well, I think for a few reasons. First of all, that very simply we would just be aware of such influences and that we will learn as Christians there's nothing unloving about being watchful and being discerning. There is nothing more foolish than, than being spiritually naive or gullible. That's never God's intention for us. God doesn't want us to be critical and judgmental. But God wants us, by the spirit of truth, that is what the Holy Spirit's called by Jesus, to interpret and to discern what is truth and what's error. The Bible tells us to judge Prophecies to listen to things, to test the spirits, to make sure that it is of the spirit of the Lord so we avoid the effects of that. And secondly, I think that we'd be willing to recognize and accept the reality this is just the way it's going to be. See, some people get really bugged. Oh, I mean, all these, there's, there's all this corruption among the church. There's all this hypocrisy or these, these false teachers or they watch a television program that those of us who are genuine Christians look at and we go, oh my gosh, why are those people on TV? They're representing Christianity and some unsaved guys clicking through the channels watching the Phillies or this and that and then he sees that and he goes, this is, this is Christianity? This is church? No wonder. These, these guys are... And, and what happens? And they get a stereotypical prejudice and bad attitude towards God. Listen. Jesus said these things are going to exist. That's not an outer an excuse. We just need to accept the reality these things are going to exist. Jesus said, look, there are going to be things nesting in the branches. And, and it's unfortunate, but the presence and the reality of it, Jesus said, is something that just will be a reality that always exists. And to make sure we each, I think as well, he tells us this, to make sure we each take very, very seriously as individual eternal souls before God where we're at in our own spiritual relationship with our Creator. That despite what anyone else or others do, we would make sure that we're right with God personally. That I wouldn't say when I get to heaven, well, if it wasn't for that you know, guy on the TV that always, you could tell he was such a fake, you know that's why I wanted nothing to do with, with church or God. and, and That's not going to work. That's not going to work. Or well, I went to church and you know, I had this really bad experience and, and, I was, you know, and, and this happened and they started going off in another direction. So that's it. I'm, I'm done. I'm done with church. I'm, I'm done with Jesus. I'm done with God. Wait a minute. We need to stand before God and believe what we've come to by our own conscious convictions by studying the word of God for ourselves. And taking accountability for our own soul before the Lord. Jesus said, look, I know this stuff's out there. It's going to happen. It's going to be a reality. And he's just warning us that we would make sure, therefore, that we are seeking out and searching for the truth. And that we know the truth for ourselves. Verse 22 says, then Jesus went through the cities and the villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. So Jesus now is within the last few months, historically, before going to Jerusalem, where he would suffer and die on the cross for our sins. And he set his face, the Bible says, like a flint stone. Not those kind of flint stones, sorry about that. A flint stone. He's determined now to go to Jerusalem to fulfill the will of God, which was the sacrifice himself for our sins upon the cross, to be the substitutionary payment for my sins and your sins, the sins of the whole world. And he is determined now, heading towards Jerusalem, the time of his ministry is within the last few months at this point. So his time is limited on the earth. And it's interesting to me, in the last few months of Jesus' earthly existence and ministry, why he was with us, notice what he's concentrating on. It tells us here in verse 22, he's concentrating on going around and teaching as many people as possible the truths of God's kingdom. It says here that he went through the cities and the villages. In other words, Jesus had an interest as well as took the time to not only teach the word of God in large populated cities, but he also loved and cared just as much and gave time to small rural villages as well. In other words, Jesus was just as interested in teaching to small groups of a few people as he was big massive crowds in major cities. His heart was just to communicate the word of God to as many people as possible. I like this. Jesus wasn't trying to strategically build an empire in some particular location, but, but he was just moving around, sharing God's word wherever he had an opportunity. So if it was with four people in a village or whether it was with 400 or 4,000 people gathered in a city, Jesus just wanted to share God's word. And the Bible tells us in the Gospels he was preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God. Because Jesus wanted people to experience God's salvation. He wanted people to enter the kingdom of God and to know the truths of God's word. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that God our Savior desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. God our Savior, God who became our Savior, that's Jesus. His desire is that all men, anywhere, any place whether one soul or whether a hundred souls responding at once, that God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Well, verse 23 says that one said to him in the midst of this, Lord, are there few who are saved? So as Jesus is traveling around teaching about the kingdom of God, one person is prompted to inquire out loud if only a few people are going to get saved. Now, we don't know whether this come from maybe a discouraged disciple who was traveling with him in ministry that maybe was wishing that more people would be responding to the message, but Jesus would never compromise the message. So maybe this discouraged disciple was struggling because Jesus was just so spot on and he just spoke the truth with no apology and he just put forth the truth of the kingdom of God and the gospel message. And maybe this one discouraged disciple is thinking, man, I wish, I wish more people were responding. And maybe he's saying, well, are only a few going to get saved? Or this could be just a curious listener or even one of his critics. Either way, Jesus, you'll notice, does not directly answer the question. What Jesus does do is he uses this as a teaching opportunity to emphasize the importance of each and every person being ready to enter the kingdom of God themselves and be right with God individually. Because you'll notice that Jesus now begins to speak about personal experience and personally entering into the kingdom of God as individuals look how he answers it says Jesus then answered and said to him verse 24 strive to enter through the narrow gate for many I say to you will seek to enter and not be able now take note as we go through this and we see repeated references to the kingdom of God and Jesus himself talking about the kingdom of God because he's the king of the kingdom. Take notice of a few things. First of all, please take note right away that the kingdom of God is something that must be entered into. Now, I know that may almost sound you know, overly you know, simple to say, but please take note that the kingdom of God is something that must be entered into. Each individual with breath in their lungs must willfully seek access an entrance at some point into the kingdom of God. You'll notice Jesus says, verse 24 there, strive to enter through the narrow gate. Amazingly, though we are all undeserving because we all sin and fall short of the glory of God, God and his tremendous love for us has opened a gateway of relationship back into fellowship with him, though our sins have separated from him. That God so loved the world, Jesus said, that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. That though we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and were separated from God, that God demonstrated his love in this, that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And now though the wages of our sin is death, that's what we deserve. The Bible says the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. And if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in our heart God's raised from the dead, we shall be saved. And God in his amazing love is the one, guess what, who opened up that gateway. There was a major roadblock between humanity and their sinfulness and God and his holiness. We are born sinful by nature and we are born separated from God because of our sin. We don't start out in right relationship with God. We start out dead in trespasses and sins. Adam could only pass on to creation what he had, and Adam only had physical life because he lost relationship with God in the garden. So when we're born, we're born separated from God. We don't become sinners. We just prove that we're sinners as we live out our lives. If you've raised children, you realize that. You don't have to teach your children how to do what's wrong. They automatically know. They know how to pull their brother or sister's hair. They know how to throw a temper tantrum. They know how to lie and be sneaky. They know how to be disrespectful. They're, my, mine are on occasion pretty impressive with that kind of stuff. I know they probably have good genes and I pass some of that on to them. But, but I have had to teach my children how to do what's right. I don't have to teach them how to do what's wrong. They know that automatically. Why? Wow, imagine that living illustration because God says we're sinful by nature. By nature we're sinful we automatically are, are sinful before God. We just prove it out as we live our lives. But yet God has made this gateway and access for us to have relationship with him, to have our sins forgiven and to be back in relationship with God and to have the assurance of eternal life so that we don't perish and go to hell after we die on this earth. And the wonderful thing is that God by his determination has given access for that but yet the reality is it's through a very narrow gate, Jesus says here. God, by his determination, has made one exclusive entryway to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, I, I'm not upset that there's only one way. I'm thankful there is a way. Because none of us deserve a way. I'm just glad that God made a way. I don't want to dispute with the God of creation. What do you mean there's only one way? There's more than one way in my house. You're only going to make one way into heaven? He's God. Who am I to argue over that? I'm thankful he made a way. And there is, Jesus says, an exclusive narrow way. The Bible teaches it is through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Listen to what Jesus said in John fourteen six. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's pretty narrow-minded, isn't it? Jesus was pretty narrow-minded when it came to eternal life and salvation. Jesus said, I am the way. Now, that means Jesus was either a raving lunatic on this planet, or he was the Lord of creation and the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Because only one of two people would say, I am the singular way, and no one can get to the Father in heaven except through me. I'm the exclusive access point. And unless you come to me, you can't get into heaven that's either one of two people that's not just a good religious man that's not just a spiritual rabbi that's either a madman or that is the son of God and savior of the world speaking with authority the truth that we all need to know for eternal destiny Jesus said in John 10 I am the door and he says anyone who enters by me he will be saved Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. So God, through Jesus, resolved the problem of our sin that separated us from a holy God. Jesus came. He lived the sinless life we could not. He embraced the punishment for our sins that we deserve so that we don't have to. He died on the cross as our substitute. God's wrath was satisfied. Jesus rose from the dead And now Jesus says, if you believe in me and come through me as the one mediator between God and man, he says, then your sins can be forgiven and you can have access to eternal life. But we must choose to accept and embrace by faith God's terms that he's established for access into heaven. And that is through belief and faith in his son Jesus Christ as the narrow gate. This reminds me of what Jesus said as well in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and there are many who go by it. Because narrow is the gate, Jesus said, and difficult is the way which leads to life and there are few who find it. See, entering the kingdom of God is as well, not only something we must do, but please note as well, it's not something that's going to happen automatically. And here's what I want you to see in this. Entering the kingdom of God is not going to happen automatically that we'll we'll just kind of drift into it eventually if we just kind of hang around the gate. Maybe eventually we'll just kind of drift our way. And Jesus is emphasizing in verse 24 that we must consciously, willfully, and individually seek to enter by our own personal decision at some point on this earth. Jesus says there are strive to enter because many will seek to and not be able. That word strive Jesus uses in the original language is an athletic term and it refers to agonizing that an athlete would would agonize in tremendous effort to win the prize and obtain the victory in their event. Again, as you watch the Olympics in the days ahead, you'll notice athletic victory is not obtained by passively just sitting around and doing nothing. You'll You'll never obtain the prize that way. The athlete has to pursue through action and effort in order to acquire what they're seeking to obtain. And that's the term that Jesus uses here. We must consciously extend personal desire and determination spiritually to enter through that narrow gate, which is Jesus Christ himself. Not that we work for our salvation. That's not what the Bible teaches. Not that we work for our salvation. But we must exercise our will by making a choice to embrace Jesus we must at some point ultimately take action via an act of faith to say yes to Jesus Christ. There must come a moment in our life, a decision day when we make the choice to enter in to the kingdom of God through the gateway of the person of Jesus Christ. And that is why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Because see, there is a day... Of each and every person's salvation a day in which I then understanding the claims of the gospel the reality of of my own personal sinfulness before God I understand the reality of the consequences of my sinfulness before God that there is an eternal place of punishment called hell and there is access to eternal life with God in heaven and I understand that there is only one way it's not by being religious it's not by saying hey I got Christian parents so don't I kind of drift in together with them No, it's by understanding I, as an individual sinner before a holy God, understand what Jesus Christ did for me in his love. And I humbly put down my pride, I humbly put down my my selfishness, and I say, Jesus, would you save me? Take away my sin. I want to go to heaven. And I understand, Lord, I won't if you don't save me. If you don't forgive my sin, and the Bible says today, there is a day when each and every person must do that. And the searching question, maybe for one or some of you this morning, is have you ever done that yet? If not, maybe today is the day that you respond to what the Lord has been speaking to you. And what does Jesus mean here when he says as well that many will seek to enter and not be able? Well, I think, in essence, some want to enter the kingdom of God, but guess what? They're not willing to turn away from their sin. They're not willing to turn away from the ways of the world and walk away from those things and living in the world and enter through the gateway of Jesus and begin to live a life in the kingdom of God. And therefore, they, they want to enter, they seek to enter, but they won't be able to enter because they are not able to turn away and do the difficult thing to turn away from that and to follow Jesus into the kingdom of God instead. said. Others, I think, want to enter the kingdom of God, and many don't enter. They're not able because, let's say, they kind of want to hang around the gates of Jesus. They don't really want to make a commitment, though, and enter in, though. They don't mind hanging around the gates of Jesus. They realize it's better than the gates of the world, where all kinds of rotten, horrible things are happening and people are ruining it. So they kind of tend to gravitate a little more to the gate of Jesus. And look, things seem a little better in that environment. So, so, hey, I'm not opposed to hanging around the gate of Jesus. People seem nice there. They don't, they don't stab people in the back. And there's a little, kind of a little bit of love. And, and people want to hang around the gate of Jesus, but they won't enter into the kingdom simply because they're never willing to make a commitment to actually enter in themselves. Other people want to enter the kingdom, and they won't do so because they cannot humble themselves to accept the exclusive terms That God has provided through Jesus. That it's not through being religious, but having a relationship and following Jesus. Would you be honest with me this morning? It is difficult. It's difficult to submit our stubborn will and accept and admit the fact that we need to be saved by Jesus. That takes humility. And by nature, I'm proud and I'm arrogant. And to acknowledge the fact there's only one way, my human pride resisted that. my humanity struggled against it and many a times people therefore they'll seek to find loopholes continuously and they will chronically again and again try and find other ways around the simple truths of the gospel and they will look for loopholes listen remember Jesus will not accept any of these despite how good they are despite how religious they are many will stubbornly seek to come to God on their own terms wrongly believing some people All of their lives wrongly believing that God's going to make an exception for them. He won't. Maybe everybody in the world makes an exception for you. Because you're that kind of gal. Or you're that kind of guy. And you know how to work everybody else on this planet. You can't work God. And God won't make exceptions. And there are people, tragically, who will regretfully discover one day that God says, look, I don't show partiality. You must come on my terms because I am God and you are a human being. And Jesus says, many, tragically, will seek to enter and not be able. Verse 25, he says, when once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door... And you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. He'll answer and say, I do not know you where you're from. And then we will begin to say, but we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, again, notice, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. So Jesus shows here that entering the kingdom of God as well, as we've been saying, is solely based on and determined by what? Knowing Jesus personally. It's pretty obvious here. He's picturing the kingdom of God like a great banquet. And the day in which the master of the banquet gets up and he says, Okay, time to shut the doors. And at that moment, a prior invitation for anyone to enter in and enjoy the banquet with the king. That moment comes to an end, it comes to a close, and the time of admittance has now ended, and many will, having missed the opportunity, then at that moment on the outside be begging with regret for access, and the master will say, you know what? Hey, I offered the opportunity, and you spurned it, and you spurned it again and again. And they will plead with regret and remorse, and, and, and he will have to tell them, That though they argue, and notice what they argue there in verse 26, they say, well, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. I mean, isn't that good enough? I mean, we were respectful towards you. Yes, we spurned your invitation. But I mean, we were respectful towards you at least. We we, we interacted with you. And the master indicates that they never, however, encountered him personally. And he says to them, but I never knew you depart from me. And what Jesus is doing here obviously is picturing what will happen spiritually in relation to the kingdom of God. Right now, there is an age of grace and anybody can enter into the kingdom of God. It's an open invitation, but that time of opportunity will come to an end. No one knows the day or the hour when it's going to come to an end, but there is coming a time when Jesus will shut the door of access into the kingdom of God. And many with great eternal regret will be left outside pleading for access saying lord lord yet their acknowledgement is too late at that point jesus says and at that moment notice people will try and argue their exposure to the things of jesus and grounds using that as grounds for maybe last minute access but we see here that like this king jesus says that will be insufficient and he'll reject that saying to them as they're saying, but we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. He's picturing how people were a part of the ministry. They heard his teachings, but they never encountered him personally in that day. And the same thing happens today. Right? If we're honest today, similar things. People will say things like, but I attended church potlucks. I went to all their picnics. I mean, I even, I even had friends. And, 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 I, and I hung out with your people around the gates of the kingdom and, 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 and I ate meals with them and, and I even listened to your teachings, Lord. Every, every Sunday I listened to you at Calvary Chapel Gateway. Every Sunday. I was there. You were teaching in my streets and I was there. And I listened. And Jesus is going to tragically say to some, but I never knew you. Nothing personal ever happened between you and me. You never encountered me and embraced me for yourself. You may have been exposed to me, but you never encountered me. And tragically, Jesus is wanting us to see here that having association with the things of Jesus is not the same thing as having an encounter personally with the person of Jesus Christ himself in salvation and embracing and following him as the Lord. Listen, I know know things about Billy Graham. But I don't know Billy Graham personally. I've participated in things that involve Billy Graham's activities and ministries. But I don't know Billy Graham personally. I have no commitment or relationship with him. Now my wife, I know personally. I don't just know things about her. I know her personally through a commitment we made to one another. I know her and she knows me. And we have ongoing relationship. The Bible saying the same is true with Jesus. It's not enough just to know things about Jesus. We have to personally know Jesus. There needs to come a time of a commitment we make to Jesus and then a continual relationship we have ongoing in fellowship with Jesus where we actually know him and he knows us too because we've made a commitment and we have continuing ongoing relationship. And apart from that personal relationship, one day people will hear that dreadful eternal statement in verse 27 where Jesus says, I do not know you. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Verse 28, Jesus then says, And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he says there, When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves, because they didn't know him, thrust out. See, there's coming a time, Jesus shows us, when he is going to make a separation between those who genuinely followed him and those who did not. Those who were genuinely saved and those maybe even who were very associated with lots of people who were saved, but they weren't genuinely saved. And Jesus knows the spiritual condition of every life and those who are in relationship with him and he will reward and judge accordingly with perfect justice. Matthew 25 says, tells us that when the son of man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all nations will be gathered before him and he will separate one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats see living in the kingdom of god is a literal reality to be experienced by those who believe and follow jesus as you look at the description of jesus here notice he speaks of the presence of old testament believers abraham and isaac and jacob who had died in faith but look they're not dead. They're still alive. Jesus pictures them experiencing the kingdom of God. They're very much alive still as Jesus grants them access. In Matthew 25, 34, Jesus says, The king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared from the foundation of the world. Now, in the same way, experiencing literally the kingdom of God is a reality. It is just as much a literal reality that a person can experience the torments of of being thrust out of the kingdom of God and into the place of eternal darkness. Access to the kingdom of God will be denied by those who don't seek to enter by God's means of access, which is his son Jesus Christ. And Jesus will judge and many will be cast out into outer darkness. Where Jesus says here, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping there is a term which speaks of emotional torment, sorrow and grief and regret eternally. You ever really regretted something before and felt that feeling of guilt when you did something and you felt so regretful? And Jesus says one of the experiences of the torment of hell is people will be weeping with regret for eternity that they made the wrong choices that they did. And he says gnashing of teeth. That term speaks of like a, a grinding of one's teeth because of physical agony and pain and constantly in pain, agonizing over the torments of eternal punishment. Jesus says in Matthew 25, he will say to those on his left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Please take note, it is not God's intention that human beings go to hell. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. It's not God's intention For any of us to go to hell. But it is God's only ultimatum. For an eternal destiny. For those who reject Jesus. And don't want to go to heaven. God doesn't send people to hell. People choose. To not enter the kingdom of God. And the only other ultimatum God has justly. Is another eternal abiding place. Which is the place prepared for the devil. And his angels. And please know. The suffering and torment of hell. Is a literal And eternal reality. It tells us in Revelation chapter 20 the lake of fire is a place where people will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's real. It's real. And Jesus is seeking to warn to avoid that. He says, verse 29, and they will come from the east and the west, the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. Again, he comes back to say, will only a few be saved? Jesus says, no way. People will come from nations all over. It's open access. People will come from every direction and every background if they come on the spiritual terms of entering through the narrow gate. Jesus says they'll come from all over and enter the kingdom of God. And indeed, he says, they who are last will be first. And those who are first will be last. See, the Jews thought from their religious mindset they had special right and privilege because they were Jews. And Jesus is reminding them, look, no special exceptions despite your religious heritage. Yes, God worked through the Jews uniquely. He gave them the law. He gave them the prophecies. But God is a fair and unpartial God and everyone must enter the kingdom of God through the narrow way of God's son, Jesus Christ, by placing their faith alone in him. And many will be shocked, Jesus says, at who enters the kingdom and who doesn't and who is rewarded one way or the other. Many who appear to be the first string players on God's team, they'll be the last ones to get rewarded. we will go, what? I thought he was first string in the kingdom. Jesus said, oh no, he'll be one of the last ones rewarded. And many who thought they were just insignificant servants of the Lord that God always wanted to just put on the bench, they'll be the first ones rewarded because they were faithful in that simple thing that God gave them to do. And there are many who we look at and we think, man, that is the last person that will ever get saved. And God, in his love and his sense of humor, shocks everybody because he saves them first. And maybe this morning that you I'm the last person. Listen, then you know what? Then let God exercise a sense of humor and embrace Jesus as we close out this time. Let's pray together. We'll have our musicians come and conclude our time in worship. Father, thank you for a chance to study your word, to let it speak into our lives. And we pray that we could respond to your Holy Spirit even now. Today, Lord, if your spirit is spoken to each and every one of us, may we respond accurately the way that you would have us to. And before we sing this final song, if you today are ready to respond to Jesus, you don't know for sure if your sins are forgiven, but you want them forgiven. And you don't know for certain that if you die, that you would go to heaven. You've never had that spiritual conversion experience. If you're ready to put your faith in Jesus... To turn from your sin and embrace Jesus. Believing with all of your heart. By faith alone you're saved. Just pray a prayer like this sincerely to God. You can say dear God. I know that I'm a sinner. I'm sorry for all of my sin against you. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. And today Jesus. Save me from my sin. Forgive me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I receive your gift of eternal life. Help me now to follow you the rest of my days. In Jesus' name, amen.